Strange Priests, A Better Covenant, and Blind Faith. All this and more in the book of Hebrews. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Son, His Word, and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what both, we say. Both, in, yeah, any order. Yeah, that's great. Both of them are great. Yeah, both are good. Anyway, we're pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. Welcome, like, subscribe, comment. It's going to be a great day as we look at God's Word, and we are in the second half of Hebrews today. Ooh, Hebrews. I hope you're enjoying as you're reading through this book. It's a good one. There definitely are confusing things, and hopefully we can clarify that a little bit. Yeah. Focused last week on the... Um, the whole idea of falling away from the faith, right? Mm-hmm. Big d- disputed I- idea in Hebrews. And today we'll look at um, Melchizedek, who, is he a magical guy? Is he He's a mysterious well, he, guy. He's a little magical. Yeah, it seems like it, right? Some of, the, some of the language. Is he Jesus? That's even a popular thing, right? Maybe he's Jesus before Jesus. Jesus came down and hung out for a little bit, ate some bread and wine. Yep. Anyway, we'll, we'll look at that. Uh, spoiler: No, he's not. He's not Jesus, but <laughs> but but he is. He is a picture of Jesus. So um, we're in the section of the New Testament known as the Catholic epistles, not because they are Roman Catholic, but because they are have general audiences. Right? Catholic means universal. Right? So a broad audience. Um, so they're not probably written to a specific church. Mm-hmm. And and uh, here in Hebrews, we looked at the authorship last week. Who's the author? There's debate about that. We, I kind of said. Barnabas Paulus. or Apollos, probably yeah. the best options of people that we know, but we just don't know. We don't know. So um, we've, in the outline, we're in the section. We just we're in the section of Jesus, our high priest. So five through seven is Jesus, our high priest, and then in chapters eight through ten, we're going to see the superiority of the new covenant. Mm. Um, so we'll, let's get let's just jump right in. We got a lot to cover today, so let's yep. just jump in. Chapter seven. Um, so there's this comparison in chapter seven between. Christ and Melchizedek. Now, Priestly kind of guys. Thinking, huh? Wait, Melchizedek, what, who is that? Where did that come from? Well, he isn't mentioned much in Scripture. He's mentioned Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then here in, in Hebrews. And he's mentioned quite a few times in Hebrews. He's mentioned back in chapter 5. He was mentioned in chapter 6, verse 20. This is kind of sets out for this conversation. He says, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's in the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? We're going to examine that today. Okay. So remember, if you remember Genesis a long time ago, maybe for you, but um, Jesus or Abraham is coming back from conquering the these armies yep. with his little army, and he is bringing back the the spoils of war to Sodom and Gomorrah, including most importantly his nephew Lot and his family. And as he's heading back to Sodom and Gomorrah. He passes by town of Salem, um, which is related to Jerusalem, and he meets this mysterious figure called Melchizedek, who brings out bread and wine, and then Abraham gives a tenth of all of his of all of his uh, spoils of war. Not his possessions, other people's possessions, but but by right he owns them because he has won that the war, and he tithes to him. So in this passage, the writer is going to make a big deal of this, and of course in Psalm one ten. There's a statement about the son of David that he's going to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. So that's Psalm 110. So a lot of things going on here. So who is this figure? What is it all about? So it's chapter 7, verse 1. We'll read a little bit here. So for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So he's a king and he's a priest. Yeah, you Very interesting. Yeah. 
both of those things together. This wasn't a thing in Israel. You weren't allowed to have king and priest. It was impossible because there were two different tribes, Levitical priesthood and Judaic um, uh, kings. So, and to him, verse 2, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So as we're reading this, we have to just kind of say, okay, we're, we're reading him as he's speaking about the imagery that's given by Melchizedek. I don't think he's saying at all that Melchizedek is an eternal being, that he never died, that he was un, uncreated or never was born. I think he's pointing out that in the book of Genesis, everyone has a genealogy, mm-hmm. except for Melchizedek. He's one of the few important figures that doesn't have some sort of genealogy tracing his line. Mm-hmm. And so this, to the writer of Hebrews, reminds him of Christ and his priesthood. He combines king and priest. He, um, he's greater than Abraham. All these things, right, because he blesses him. So all these things point to the establishment of a priesthood that transcends or, or is before and is greater than the, the, the Old Covenant Levitical priesthood. Mm-hmm. So that's the argument he's going to be building. So verse 4 it says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. <clears throat> yeah. So God, Abraham tied to him, so this shows that he is the superior one of the two of them. And he actually makes the argument that, in verses 9 and 10, that Levi was tithing to, to uh, Melchizedek because he was still in the loins of Abraham. Mm-hmm. So look at verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who <laughs> received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham <clears throat> For he was still in the loins of his ancestor <laughs> when Melchizedek met him. So he's saying because you know he's un, not born yet, he is in a sense paying tithes. So he's admitting the the, the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood. And then verse seven, that just the blessing aspect shows who's superior. Verse seven says it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Right. So when someone is blessed, like we saw recently in Genesis where Jacob blesses Pharaoh, Hmm. it's an indication that the covenant people are greater than the greatest leader on earth at the time, Pharaoh. Here we're seeing something different, right? The the covenant people, Abraham, are being blessed by this priest king. So all of this is not to make Melchizedek into some sort of supernatural being, but to point out to us as readers that there's a need for a priesthood that is greater than Levitical priesthood. You're right, exactly. That's what it's all about and can bring together, as we saw in Ezekiel as well, the priesthood and the kingship, right? The crown and the turban together, uniting those roles in perfect harmony. There has to be one who can do that. Right. So Melchizedek is a picture of this. So the big idea is if the Levitical priesthood was meant to be perfect, why did Melchizedek exist and why was he superior mm-hmm. to them? So there's a combination of all these things. We, we need an eternal king priest. We need someone who can bring righteousness and peace by peace by being our priest. So there's more dense reasoning here that we, we can't spend much time on. But look at the conclusion in chapter 7, verse 23. This longer section is worth reading. So verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So 
Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood because they would die, they were weak, they were frail, and there would be a gap in that intercession. And Christ is always interceding for us, never dying, always continuing so that we can have a way to be before God. Mm. And then at, at the end of the chapter here, he says, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. So he, he doesn't have a sacrifice for his own sins first and then for others, but he offers a one-time, once-for-all sacrifice. Right. And we'll see this more in the next section as well, this focus on the finished, accomplished sacrifice of Christ. Mm. So it's so clear that Christ is a better priest, but also that this was always a picture in Scripture. Right. It's not because you could accuse the writer of Hebrews of saying, you're just developing this, you're just adding this on. He's saying, no, this existed before the Levitical priesthood. Right. There was, was a pointer to this. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. That's really cool to see this connection. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a great passage. Yeah. Chapter eight, um, we're, st- we're entering into a new section, the superiority of the new covenant. So all the <coughs> same themes are continuing and building, but now we see a greater focus on the covenants being contrasted. So not just Christ as our high priest, but also the tabernacle and the, the fading away of that purpose, the sacrifices and how they never could do what we needed them to do. All of those pictures being um, made obsolete in Jesus and in the new covenant. So chapter 8, verse 5, he's speaking again to the, the holy places and the sacrifices and the priests. He says, verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So the, again, he's saying there's a heavenly reality and that heavenly reality is displayed through this copy and shadow, which are the temple and tabernacle. Mm-hmm. So we, again, if you didn't, weren't, didn't hear our teaching on the temple, go to um, some of the last stuff in Exodus. Really, uh, really helpful, I think, that a lot of Christians don't understand what the temple and tabernacle are all about. Right. So make sure you listen to that. Um, but they were meant to be a copy. They're meant to point to heavenly realities. Right. But Christ brings the, the reality. He doesn't bring just a shadow. He brings the reality. Verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the, old co- than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Mm. So he's bringing a new covenant because inherently the old covenant is, is lacking. It right. needs something better. It needs something better. And he quotes here to show that it, why it's lacking. <clears throat> but jump down to verse 13 in chapter 8. It says, And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Yeah. So there's a new covenant. It is superseding the old covenant. It doesn't mean the old covenant doesn't have a ton of implications for us, right? That we don't benefit greatly. We, we spent so much time reading through that old covenant and learning so much about how to follow God. But it does mean that we're not under the old covenant anymore. Um, we don't follow the exact same system. We don't um, have you know, a theocracy. We don't have the same laws in place as the old covenant people because we're in a different time right. and, and we're under a different law, so to speak. So all of that's beneficial, but it doesn't apply in the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Let's look at chapter nine. So as he's building this argument, he focuses a little more on the tabernacle and temple and he's showing in different ways Christ's superiority to that system. 
So look at chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is one not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Mm. So again, Christ is entering into the true heavenly places, the perfect heaven, the perfect reality, and he's not doing it just by some ritualistic sacrifice to point to a need, but by his precious blood, by an infinite cost. Yeah. And chapter 9... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just saying, it's really like the way this, the, the letter of the sermon builds, you know? It's like, first he's talking about the office, you know, crisis, you know, the needed office, the priest, mm-hmm. right? Then he's talking about the, the promise, the covenant is being made new, you know? And then he's talking about the place in which it all happens is being transformed and, yeah. you know, or pointed to Jesus in the first place. Yeah, but temple and temple system, yeah. Yeah, just cohesive, you know? Yeah, so it's very, very good arguing. Yeah. You can see why this guy is probably educated, very smart, right. very sharp guy. Um, and he focuses a lot in chapter 9 on that need for blood, that every covenant is inaugurated by blood. There's a need for blood to be shed. And uh, verse 22 of chapter 9, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So that picture <coughs> remains. It's been clear throughout. And now he's going to connect that to Christ, right? Yeah. That Christ has to be has to make this new covenant by the shedding of his blood. Yeah. So 20, verse 24, again, we see that shadow versus reality idea. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. <clears throat> so God's he's going to the real place to make a real eternal difference in terms of our status before God. Uh, Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Hmm. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by a sacrifice of himself. This is helpful too because people will will wonder, how does does someone in the old covenant get saved? Hmm. And here he's saying there's always been a need for a sacrifice, right? So if that's how it was going to be. It was going to be the same as the old system of a repeated sacrifice. He'd have to be suffering constantly to constantly be covering sins. But as it is, he suffers once for all, mm-hmm. past and future. Right. right. Everyone is saved by that work of Christ on the cross, either by believing in the shadows of things to come or by looking back on that reality and trusting in his finished sacrifice. Right. That's what we get to, we get to do. Yep. Um, let's go to chapter 10. So chapter 10 builds on this. The old covenant is ineffective to truly save anyone. That was never the intention. Right. Chapter 10, verse 1, For since the law has put it but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Mm-hmm. There's an ineffectiveness in the system. It can't save. It, in fact, it was never designed to save. Verse 3, it says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The, the point of the sacrifices was not to actually save you or cleanse you. It was to remind you of your sin. Mm. And I could, we'd say by, by extension, to point you toward the need for a perfect sacrifice in Christ. Well, there's right. a little ant here. You're going to die. Um, 10.4 says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Right. Again, super helpful to understand the Old Testament. <laughs> 
It was never meant to take away sins. Mm-hmm. Meant to teach us about sin, meant to point us to Christ. Yeah, and why? How could it? I mean, just logically, mm-hmm. a lesser being, someone that that doesn't have a soul, right, or an animal doesn't have a soul, is worth less. It's not in the image of God. It can't pay for our sins. Right. It was just meant to remind us of our need for death to cover us. Right. So really good stuff here. And again, read through this a lot and, and think on it. But verse 14 kind of gets us to the conclusion of this. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Yeah. So he perfects us, and yet in our life we are progressively being made perfect in our, in our actions in the reality of our day-to-day life. Let's look at verse 19 of chapter 10. Such a good, such a good verse here. Um, the language here, he says, All right, therefore, chapter 10, verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. And here you have a bunch of these let us statements, right? Let us draw near, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Um, there's more let us in this passage than a vegan diet. Right. You know? <laughs> wow, sorry. Dad, dad joke. Old, <laughs> old, uh, old church jokes. Um, but the let us, so like this is the implications of this. We have to live in a different way if this is true. So this is not just dead theology. This, is, this gives us confidence. This gives us assurance. This gives us a new kind of life mm-hmm. and a new way of doing community. Right? We don't neglect, verse 25, to meet together as is the habit of some, but we encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Mm. So we have to be focused on how to live for God and honor him in everything because of what he's done in this new covenant. Mm. So great, great stuff. Another warning passage here in chapter 10. We won't get into that. There's, <laughs> there's, there's uh, interesting stuff there, but similar kind of ideas from chapter six would be my argument. Um, let's look at, uh, at chapter 11. Chapter 11 is a big, big chapter. This is the famous, when I was a kid, I heard it called the Hall of Faith. Hall nice. of Faith. Kind of cheesy too, but this is the famous faith chapter, right? So this shows us what faith is all about. Now, I don't, I, I would argue this is not speaking of faith so much in the Pauline sense of um, justification by faith. I think this is speaking more in terms of faith, in terms of how we live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, maybe both are in view here, but we, it starts off with a great definition of faith. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So faith gives us assurance and conviction of those things that we don't have yet, we don't take hold of. Um, so we, we can know that what God says is true, and we can trust that we have a hope that endures, Right? So it's, it's understanding what God says, and it's holding on to that even when we can't see that reality yet. Mm-hmm. So he goes through just all these great stories. A lot of it is from Genesis, right? Some of it's from Exodus and, and, and beyond, but so much of it is, is he goes through Abel and Enoch, and then he has this great statement in chapter 11, verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So you have to have faith to know God. You have to, you have to believe in what he says 
And, and so you have to believe that he not only exists, but also he wants you to draw near to him. Right. That there's blessing when you come near to God. Mm-hmm. So such a, a powerful and good statement, another good memory verse. He goes into Abraham's story quite a bit, which, which again, I love. We just, we just finished uh, Genesis recently. Genesis eleven ten it says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So in speaking of God calling him out of his homeland, away from his family, it's saying Abraham believed that there was something waiting for him that was greater. Right. And that's why he was able to obey God's command. Mm-hmm. He believed and he endured because of that. He was looking forward to that city. And then we see more of that in... Uh, Chapter 11, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar mm-hmm. and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Mm. I love this. So they're looking and they're believing that God has something greater. They understand that they don't belong here and they're trusting that God has a, a greater land for them ahead. Mm. Which is cool because in Genesis, we don't really get explicit statements about eternity. We don't yeah. always we don't always know what's going on in the mind, the heart of these folks. Right. And here you see that they understood that there was something, there had to be something better than what they had currently. Hmm. And so they treated this world as if they were not at home here and they looked forward to what was ahead. Yeah, that's great. I love that. You know, what greater picture than Abraham who was a, a husband to a barren woman, had no hope of salvation, I mean, of, of uh, being part of that seed promise from mm-hmm. Genesis. And yet God chose him and worked through him in a powerful way, right? It took decades before he had one kid. Mm-hmm. And even when he died, all he had was one kid. <laughs> and yet God made from him the fulfillment of all God's promises. Yeah. Pretty pretty amazing. So faith is, is so powerful. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunities to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So, man, just beautiful words, beautiful words here. Very um, dear to so many people. Then he gets an example of, well, he talks about Jacob and Isaac and Joseph. And uh, I like this too, because, you know, just the idea of seeking a homeland. At the end of Genesis, both Jacob and Joseph say, you're going to bury me in the promised land. Hmm. Jacob says, go there and bury me now. But Joseph says, <laughs> keep my body for 400 years and wait. And when you guys go back, mm. bury me. And so both of them had this rock solid confidence that they died with a confidence that God was going to bring them out of a place that would be suffering and into a place that would be blessing. Right. And he did. I love that. Um, but Moses is, is such a great example as well, right? Moses, who was taken from being a slave to be being put in the house of Pharaoh. Yeah. being this place of prominence and luxury. And in verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Mm-hmm. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking f- to the reward. I love that. So he, he thought suffering with Christ was better than being at home in Pharaoh's household. Yeah, well, even the language there was kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah the cr- Christ being mentioned yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like suffering with Christ. So Christ, his work you know, applies backward, right? And that mm. Christ is in view here and that Christ is the God who brought the people out of Egypt, as Jude will say, and all these things, right? So yeah, Christ is it's not doesn't just arrive on the scene when he comes in the flesh. 
he's been working the whole time. So yeah. what a beautiful, what a beautiful, like historical examples of faith, right? Mm-hmm. So good. So yeah, just some, some fantastic words here. Very encouraging and good for us as we might struggle, have ups and downs in the Christian life, that there's a better home waiting for us. Mm-hmm. And so we get to follow these examples of people. All of these people were imperfect, right? Flawed, sometimes in really big ways. And yet they got one thing right, which is that they had faith that there was something better waiting for them. Mm. So we can take that example and live in the same way. He goes through many more examples here. But at the end, he says, verse 39, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Mm. So all of them waited to see what we see in Jesus. Um, and then we get to enter into that family and into that legacy. Yeah. Pretty amazing. So chapters 12 and 13 give some practical encouragements. We see a connection to the last chapter at the beginning of chapter 12. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so the cloud of witnesses being these people of faith that have gone before us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So in light of that, we should be inspired. We should, we should run with endurance. And, and how do we do that? Well, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Founder and perfecter. So he's the one who started it. He's the one who brings it to completion. Again, the author of Hebrews is not of a different theology than everyone else. He understands right. Jesus is the beginning and the end of our faith. He's mm-hmm. the one who brings us home safely. And it's not, it's, we can't lose our salvation. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we look to Jesus, we look to his own suffering and the joy he had in enduring suffering to accomplish for us that good work. Mm-hmm. And we live in the same way. We endure in this life and we strive and we struggle to live a life that's for God. Amen. Chapter 12 has a section here about God's discipline, right? I love this section, but your basic idea, you're a son, right? A sons get disciplined. Yeah. And if you don't get disciplined, then your father doesn't love you, <laughs> which is great advice for our world around us that doesn't like your discipline, of course. But so when God puts you through difficult times, don't think at all on that, that God doesn't love you. Mm-hmm. Think the opposite. God's putting me through hard times to test me, to mature me so that I can know him better. Yeah. Right? Um, verse 10, chapter 12, verse 10, for they disciplined us, meaning earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Mm. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Mm. So he encourages you at the end. Be strong, right? Keep going. Press on. And know that you're, you're coming to a kingdom that can't be shaken, mm. to one that will endure forever. So some great impract- practical exhortations at the end here that we don't have time to cover, but read through them, be encouraged, and apply these to your life. Yeah, that's awesome. Very great. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us for Daily Gospel in the Book of Hebrews, and we will see you next week. Thanks again.